as much as anyone in my life that I know brings a, a biblical worldview, a biblical perspective, um, and just is infused with God's word, uh, as you can see his Bible up here, which is kind of falling apart, um, really, you, sh you have to come look at his Bible. Um, but as a pastor, Randy, I've, I'm sure that you've been, found yourself in moments like this uh, where there was a word that needed to be shared. What, what would you share? It's funny, even as you were talking there, Todd, I thought of a number of different passages of Scripture that come to mind with this. Certainly, uh, one of them is 2 Corinthians 4, where it says in um, verse 16, Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. So you see someone like our sister outwardly wasting away, but there's something going on inside that's from another world. And the same Lord that regenerates us, makes us to be born again, sanctifies us through the power of his Holy Spirit, brings us into conformity to the image of Christ. And so it says... For our light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And you think, well, Paul, are you trivializing suffering like we've just seen and suffering like has gone on in numbers of our lives? Well, sometime, you know, read 2 Corinthians chapter 10, which is a short list of Paul's sufferings. And you will be blown away at how much this man suffered. He's not minimizing it. He's saying they're light and momentary compared to what awaits us in eternity. And it's not just that our light and momentary afflictions will be replaced by eternal happiness and health and wealth and all that is good, though that's true. But it's really saying that those current sufferings are achieving for us a greater eternal glory. God will be more glorified and he will be pleased to more glorify us as his image bearers, as his children who will help him rule the universe to his glory forever. He is preparing us for another world. It's, it was the carpenter from Nazareth who said, I go to prepare a place for you. I don't think it's an accident that he was born a carpenter. Do you? Carpenters make things and they fix things that have gone wrong. Jesus made the world, Scripture tells us in Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, John 1. And he will come and dramatically repair the world. He will fix the world and forever it will be made right. So our sister has gone home as have many of our loved ones. I mean, if I ask you right now to raise your hands or to raise the number of fingers of 
close loved ones, children, spouse, mothers, fathers, siblings, dear friends who have died. Some of you couldn't begin to put it on two hands. And most of us would take up the better part, certainly, of one hand, if not two. And you know what? The God that we love, the God that we worship, tells us that he has a purpose for us here, but he has a far better place. And so one of the things that came to mind, uh, as Kara was sharing, um, in, in Revelation 21, where we're told about a new heaven and a new earth, and then it says, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And then it says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. What he's telling us is there is going to be not simply a redeemed us, not simply resurrected us, but a resurrected universe to his glory and that God is going to come down and dwell with us on the new earth. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus will be with us on a regenerated earth for all eternity. Jesus said that in Matthew 19 about the coming renewal of all things. Peter in his second message in Acts 3 talked about the regenerated world that the prophets spoke of that we're one day going to live in and miracle of miracles actually by his grace rule over. And if you have that start to finish perspective that starts from Eden and ends in the new earth, then you know the beginning and you know the middle that you're living in and you know the end. I write novels, and in a novel, things may start okay at the beginning, but they go bad really quickly. <laughs> and then the worse they get, the greater is the resolution and the climax when things come together at the end. Well, you and I, right now, we're living in the middle of the story. We're living in the suffering part of the story. But it's not pointless suffering because our God is using it to achieve in us an eternal weight of glory. Jesus said in Matthew 13 that the children of the Father shall shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. And we're told that kingdom will be centered here on earth. And so one of the perspectives that, that this story gives to me is, yes, number one, as she said, we're all dying. We are all dying, right? Do, do, I, I hope we understand that. But, because we can, we can lie to ourselves and we can kid ourselves. But the beauty is that we live in this dot. And from the dot we live in extends a line. And that line is going to go out forever. But what we do in the dot here and now will matter in the line. And the promises of God for our eternal future become backloaded into the lives that we live today. And we go, we're going to live forever with Jesus, the resurrected Jesus on a resurrected earth, with our resurrected family and friends that know Jesus. That's what awaits us. And, and, and it goes on to say, there will be no more tears. I will wipe away the tears from every eye. No more pain. No more crying. Well, then that future reality 
becomes part of our lives today. So we live in the now, but the future works its way back into the now. And as we live in the now, what we do here and how we serve Christ and how we give generously and how we share our faith with people and all of this in the now has dramatic effect upon the future. So our lives are purposeful. They're tied together. It's not all over once you leave this world. And this is why we need to either not have bucket lists or dramatically change the nature of our bucket lists. Our, any bucket list we would have here should not assume that, oh, well, this is our only chance to have fun and do exciting things and climb mountains and run and do this and swim. And no, there's a world to come in which God promises we will be able to do those things because we'll be resurrected people in a resurrected world. But what we need to do now is to say, here's what is limited. What's limited is the opportunity to clothe and feed and help the needy to reach people without Christ with the gospel, to reach people of every tribe, nation, and language and get the word of God into their hands because that opportunity is limited to this lifetime. In the ages to come, we will have every reason to praise him forever and one of the greatest reasons for praise will be to sit next to at those great banquet feasts where Jesus says they will come from the east and the west and they will sit at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And I believe Jesus will be in charge of the seating arrangements of those banquets and that he's going to put us next to somebody on our left who will be able to thank, thank you for the incredible impact you had on my life and then on our right, people who will thank us. And we will be blown away to have people say, thank you for the thousands or tens of thousands or millions of dollars or whatever it was that you sent to plant churches, to feed my hungry children, to bring us the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in that day, there is not going to be one of us in all of our happiness and all of our joy that we'll look back on this life and go, you know, I kind of went overboard. I wish I wouldn't have given so much. Trust me, it will not happen. <laughs> I'm speechless, Randy. Uh, um, okay, it's obvious that you're passionate about everything, but uh, really... Eternity, right? You started a ministry called Eternal Perspective Ministries. And giving, those two things, why are you so passionate about those? And how are they connected in your mind and well, in God's Word? You know, yeah. What? Well, they are essentially connected because God's grace is the most important and most wonderful thing in the universe. Now, every attribute of God is wonderful. Obviously, his love, his holiness, his um, kindness, his patience, um, yes, even his wrath, um, all of these things about God that are true are worthy of praise. But there's something special about grace 
the grace of God that we see in the person of Jesus. And in the greatest passage in giving, and in, in really in all of Scripture, well, in, in the Old Testament, there's 1 Chronicles 29, which is just an incomparable passage on giving in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the greatest passage on giving, I think, is 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and it goes on, and it's so rich. And the word grace appears over and over and over again. We know the grace of God to the Macedonian churches, northern Greece, about how in their poverty, out of their joy, they gave forth in rich, abundant generosity. How do people in poverty give generously? But they did. It overflowed out of them in their joy. And then it goes on to talk about uh, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. We know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, think about it, the richest person in the universe. He's part of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. He poured himself out for us so that we can experience his grace and be wealthy in his grace and his love and his presence for all eternity. And then that word grace, the Greek word charis, is repeated time and time again in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And it's in the midst of this great passage on giving. And he says, you are to learn to excel in this grace of giving in your life. Giving is a grace. We are to excel in it. And so we look at God and what he's done for us, which is just, I mean, unfathomable what he's done for us. We look at what he's done for us, and then we say, I want to be an instrument of God to bring his grace to other people. And when we do that, and we become cheerful givers, which 2 Corinthians 9 says, God loves a cheerful giver. Now, God loves an obedient giver too. But there's nothing like the happiness that comes in giving. So God's grace is the lightning. And when that lightning strikes, thunder always follows. God's grace is the lightning our giving back to him is the thunder. Where there is great grace, there should always be great thunder that follows that lightning. And if there's an absence of the thunder of giving, it suggests that somehow we are failing to see the reality of the grace of God in our lives. So uh, one of the major themes of your writing around money and the treasure principle and money possessions in eternity um, is the contrast between owner and steward. And you use an illustration that is somewhat memorable about the FedEx guy. Yeah, there's a, I was talking with a few people today about this. Somebody uh, mentioned the, uh, the FedEx <laughs> illustration. Um, in a few of my books, including uh, Managing God's Money, I, I use this illustration uh, of uh, the FedEx delivery person comes to my house, and I send certain things out, FedEx, I receive certain things. 
FedEx. Well, what, what would happen if I found out that the FedEx guy, who I've gotten to know, it's pretty much usually the same guy, um, what if I found out for the last couple of months he's been taking everything that I've been handing to him or putting out on the porch for him to pick up, and he's been taking it home and keeping it? What? How would I respond? Well, I need to confront the guy. So comes to the door. I say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I found something out. Is it true that all this stuff I've been handing over to you, you've been taking it home and keeping it? Well, what if he responded and said, look, if you didn't want me to keep it, you shouldn't have given it to me in the first place. To which I would say, you're the FedEx guy. It's your job. That's what you're supposed to do. If you prefer UPS, United Post Office, whatever, you know, uh, go with that. But the point is, you give something to somebody, they're not supposed to keep it. They're supposed to get it to the one whose name's written on it. So what makes us think that just because God has put so much into our hands that we're supposed to keep it. Does that make sense? So you've been working for the last three years on a book about happiness. And you seem to think that happiness and generosity are tied together. Talk Talk to us a little bit about that. Well, first let me ask a question, just spontaneous, experiential, without any studies, and not even thinking of Bible verses to back it up. How many of you agree that giving is a huge part of happiness in your life? Is it? I can't see you, so, I mean, we're blind up here, but I can hear some of you. Well, some of you have experienced it, so you know that it's true. But the amazing thing is that all of the secular studies on happiness, that they started about 15, 20 years ago, uh, psychologists were saying that, you know what, too much time has been spent on negative stuff. We need to try to find out what is happiness and what makes people happy. And they've conducted all these studies. And isn't it a shock? They have discovered that people who give most generously and serve other people wholeheartedly are the happiest people. Well, it's true. It's absolutely true. And so I've read secular books arguing for people uh, to go out and serve others and give for their own sake. Okay? Well, actually, you see that in the Bible too. You don't just, just for our sake. But what did Jesus say in Acts 20, 35? It's the only recorded... Um, Statement of Jesus in the book of Acts that's not in the Gospels. It's, it's almost like God was saving it up. Acts 20.35, where Paul refers to the saying of our Lord Jesus, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Well, in this book on happiness, you know, I'm studying these different words, and the word that is translated blessed is the Greek word makarios, and it is the common, ordinary, normal word for happiness or happy or happy making. So what Jesus was saying is, it is more happy making to give than to receive. Now, the way we live so often, you'd sure think it was the opposite. 
Because we want to get stuff. And when we get it, we want to keep it. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong at all with keeping some things. Of course, God expects us to keep some things and use some things and have some things. It's not that. But Jesus is saying, you want to get happy? Well, here's what's more happy-making than getting, than receiving. It's giving. It will make you more happy to give than to receive. And you see joy and giving, uh, happiness, delight, merriment, cheerfulness, gladness, and giving integrated all over these passages in Scripture. You see cheerful people, people made cheerful because of the privilege the privilege. I, I remember years ago, the privilege of giving. I remember years ago um, when some people found out that we were giving away all the royalties from my books and all of that. They said, you know, I'm really kind of concerned for your family. I mean, I think they're going to, your kids are going to resent you. And yeah, yeah, my poor middle class kids. Oh, it's rough, you know. And, no, and, and then I, and they say, but because they're, they're going to know how much money, you, what you could have done for them. And then I look at these people and I say, there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that Nancy and I and our daughters who were with us 100% in the giving, and now they're grown and, and they're out there and they're still 100% behind us in our giving away, all these royalties, there's nothing we could have done that would have brought us more joy than has been brought to us. It's, if, it was, if I was to choose... A life that is the happy life, I would choose the giving life. It is exactly what God says. And I, I use this illustration in uh, one or two of my books, but I tell a story of years ago when my daughter was a teenager, my youngest daughter, Angela, and we were out riding bikes together, and we, and we went into this neighborhood where they're building some really nice new houses um, uh, it was just a lot nicer than the street we live on, which is, a, which is fine. Nothing wrong with the street we live on. But this was pretty amazing. And so we saw the price tag on this house that Angie was raving about. And I was raving. I said, isn't this place beautiful? And look at that view of Mount Hood. And it is just stunningly gorgeous. Now, in some parts of the country, a half a million dollars may not buy uh, the kind of huge house that it does in Oregon. I get that. But in my part of Oregon, trust me, a half-million-dollar house is, a, 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 is an amazing house. It was even then, and that was just a number of years ago. And so we're looking at it, and all of a sudden, I, I, I realize something. I look at Angie, and I say, well, you know, Angie, if we just took the royalties that came in from the books just last year, we could have, instead of giving them all away, we could have just paid cash and bought this house. Do, do you wish we would have done that? And her eyes got big and she looked at me and she said, Dad, it's just a house. And I thought of all the people who thought I was doing such a terrible disservice to my daughter and both of my daughters and their husbands who serve God with all of their hearts and who are experiencing the joy of giving and living, don't ever think that if you pass, the, the way you're going to bring happiness to your children's lives is to pass on a big inheritance. No, pass on instead a huge heritage, 
a heritage of kingdom-centered, Christ-centered, Bible-based, need-meeting ministry that will count not just for this life, but for eternity. That is the best heritage you can pass on to them. Amen. So I couldn't agree more with what you're saying around happiness. I, I like to say that in my 20 years of work uh, around this message that I've never met an unhappy, generous person. So I challenge you to try to find some, uh, a counter example. And have you that. ever met a happy, stingy person? <laughs> Ebenezer Scrooge, you know, the Scrooge, I've also miser, miserable. I've also never met a former giver. Hmm. <laughs> Think about that one. Hmm. Yeah, I tried that. It didn't work for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amen. So, Randy, Kara talked again about loving big. And we're, we're talking this, this weekend about this connection between loving yeah. and giving. How do you see those connected in the scripture and what, what commentary would you give to that? Hmm. Well, certainly we're told love is of primary importance. We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, our mind, our strength. Uh, we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. Husbands are to love their wives as they love their own body. When you love something or someone, you care for them. When we love God, we want to please God. And in this study on happiness, it's been so fun to look at all the passages about pleasing God and God taking delight in his children. And like in Zephaniah 3, of, of God taking delight in us and singing over us. And, and the way that we make God happy, that's an amazing thing to even say. That's what it means to please God, to make him happy. And Scripture is full of references to the importance of pleasing God. How do we please God and make him happy? Well, one of the ways is by loving other people. How do you love other people? Well, as Richard Wormbrand, founder of Voice of the Martyrs, said many years ago, if you saw somebody that was cold and it was Christ, would you give him your blanket? Inasmuch as you've done it into one of these, the least of these, my servants, so that you've done it unto me. And God says he will not overlook so much as a single cup of cold water given to one of these needy ones in my name. Uh, last week I was, you should not speak places two weeks in a row or even a couple of times in a few-month period, um, but I was speaking at the Gospel Coalition in Orlando last week, uh, and uh, while I was there, I was meeting with a guy named Bill Walsh, and he's walking me through all of the programs, the Gospel Coalition, all the, the books they're getting to pastors overseas, and they send these books over with the, uh, people who go out on short-term missions pro projects, and they go, people who travel as businessmen, and they bring just an extra carry-on of these books that they get, and then they get them to poor, needy pastors over there in their language if they don't know English, sometimes a lot of people overseas know English. They get them these books. So he's talking to me about all these things, and I'm physically sitting there getting so excited about this. It's not like I didn't have a bunch of things to give to already, but, oh, boy, I got back, and I started saying, all right, here we go, next royalty check. Just last month, we had a, a royalty check 
come in for $150,000. So I took 15 staff members, uh, well, 10 or 11 staff members, and then plus our kids, Nancy, my wife, and I said, I want each of you to take $10,000 of this and tell me where you want to give it. And the only thing I do at the end is exercise veto power if it's necessary, and it almost never is when I do this. But occasionally, a lot of people will give to some of the same things, and it seems like it's just a little bit too much going here and maybe not enough going here. I get these responses back for them, and, and, and they're just going crazy. And then people are talking about, this is so fun, I'm researching online and I'm talking to people, and, and this is being given in their name from our ministry, but in their name. And then they're getting the thank you letters back, and, and they're growing, and they're learning, and they're taking ownership of this money that they were able to get. There's other places where our staff could work and get paid more, but probably most of those places aren't going to give them, you know, um, lots of money sometimes more money than they're paid, you know, to give away to all these other things. And we're able to do that. So then uh, $110,000 royalties come in this month. And I sit down with it and I go, okay, I, I say to, to Bill Walsh, well, here's, uh, I want to support this, 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 and this. The next thing I know, I'm up to $38,000. And I'm thinking, well, I mean, compared to the, the whole that we're giving away, it's not that much. But I send it off to him. And if you've ever seen somebody cry in an email, that's what it felt like, it was like, you can't believe how far this is going to go. You cannot believe. And well, I know because of all these projects we're supporting. And, and what about the seed company and whole language groups of people that our ministry, and I know a number of you have done this, sponsor a language group. And for anywhere from maybe $100,000 to a couple hundred thousand dollars, sometimes it's, it's even less, you can pay start to finish for the Bible, the entire Bible being translated by trained nationals who will get this Bible into the language of people who have never had a Bible. Now, is there anything else you can think of that you could do with that money that would bring you greater joy? I'm not talking about an eternity. I'm not even talking about the reward that Christ promises us. Though that's a good thing to think about, it's wonderful. I'm even talking just here and now. And as Alan said, uh, Barnhart said so beautifully this morning and, and with his son coming up there, wasn't that just great? Uh, where, you know, the, 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 with the driveway full of Hummers, you know, in comparison to things like that, would that capture your heart and soul? And let me just say, if it would, you don't really know what joy and happiness is yet. Try this other thing. You're not going to want to go back to the driveway full of Hummers. Not that anyone's ever been there, but I'm saying. Randy, I'm sorry that this giving thing isn't working for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Brother. You know, if there's one thing that you, we are not going to regret, it's that thing of the giving. Because I just do think that there will be the brief time when we go to heaven, and we'll only get to heaven if if we know Jesus Christ, he's our Lord and Savior, covered by the blood of Christ. Not through any works we have done. There is no amount of money you can give that will earn you a place in heaven. It's all been earned by Jesus Christ. But I do think when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and 2 Corinthians 5.10 says we will each of us give an account of our lives to him. I do think at that point we will look back at our lives and I think we will then, not in eternity, 
but then feel some regret of lost opportunity. We live in the dot, but if you're smart, you won't live for the dot. You will live your life while in the dot for the line because the line is going to go on forever to the glory and praise of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Randy. Glad to be here. Randy, in many ways, uh, the four founders and other influencers in uh, this whole movement of generous giving uh, were all profoundly impacted by your writing and your ministry uh, before the launching of what has become uh, generous giving. And so thank you for uh, thank you for knowing that book. Thank you for the incredible work you've done. I remember being at the first few generous giving conferences and seeing a fledgling movement that God has used in powerful ways. And uh, thank you, generous giving, for what you have done.